Good afternoon. It's 5 p.m. on Thursday, February 10th, and you are at the bar. I'm Jennifer Braceros with Independent Women's Law Center. And I'm Inez Stepman from Independent Women's Forum. Thank you all for joining us once again for our 21st virtual happy hour, which means that at the bar is officially old enough to drink in America. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but we are going to be chatting about issues uh, at the intersection of law, politics, and culture, as we always are here at, at the bar. And today we're going to be talking about the voting rights in, uh, we're going to be talking about the Voting Rights Act. We're going to be talking about voting rights generally in America, um, in, in different states, what states are doing, and then um, what the federal law is, and, and uh, dig into whether... Uh, you know, this is a, a highly fraught topic, it seems, for both the left and the right. So we're going to dig into what the actual law says, and then um, we're going to we're going to be asking our our guest uh, some questions because she is a true expert on it. But first, Jennifer, could you um, give us kind of a, a brief overview of the history of the Voting Rights Act? Yeah, I think it's important to talk about the history because we hear um, so many people talking about this in the media. And, you know, the right talks about we need election integrity and the left says, you know, Republicans are suppressing voting rights and people don't really have a context for what they mean. What does election integrity mean? What does it mean when the Democrats say we're talking about voter suppression? And I think in order to um, fully understand the debate, you really have to go back in time and the most important thing to understand really is that the story of voting rights in America is a story of progress, right? We don't, we don't deny that at the, the founding period, you know, the franchise was limited to white men. Of course, that was the case. Um, but over time, we have significantly expanded the franchise in this country uh, to the point that today, every American over the age of 18 has a right to vote. And that vote, um, that right to vote is protected both by the Constitution and by federal statute. Um, so the 15th Amendment, which was adopted right after the, the Civil War, um, that enfranchised the formerly slave, enslaved men by prohibiting the denial or abridgment of the right to vote on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Um, now, of course, women did not gain the right to vote until many years later, uh, until 1920, um, with, with the passage of the 19th Amendment. So um, over time, we've amended our Constitution to give more people the right to vote, ultimately lowering the voting age to 18 um, in, the, in response to the Vietnam War, essentially. Um, so today, everyone over the age of 18 has that constitutional right. Um, when it comes to race, the history is complicated because after uh, the 15th Amendment was passed during Reconstruction, Black citizens registered to vote. Many were elected to state legislatures. Um, they were elected to Congress and local offices. Uh, but when the feds pulled out and Reconstruction ended, uh, the, the, the white people in the former Confederate states looked for every opportunity to, to take away the newfound right of formerly enslaved people to vote. So um, they did this in a whole host of ways. Uh, you know, the, everybody knows the Ku Klux Klan intimidated people out of voting outright, um, threatened them 
but states also enacted discriminatory voting practices to keep blacks away from the polls. So they enacted literacy tests and poll taxes and grandfather clauses, which it's funny, most people don't really know where the expression grandfather clause comes from. Like, oh, I was grandfathered out of having that to participate in that rule. Um, but what it refers to is these laws that were passed that said things like, okay, everybody in the state of Mississippi can vote if your grandfather was allowed to vote. And of course, these people who had been slaves, their grandfathers didn't vote. So basically that entire generation of former slave and even their children weren't allowed to vote because their grandfather hadn't been able to vote. So that's just a little trivia there where you get the expression grandfather clause from. Um, but so basically, you know, all of this went on throughout the the early part of the 20th century. Um, the civil rights movement started to rightfully push back and protest against this unlawful behavior, behavior that that violated the Constitution. Um, and so in 1965, um, Congress finally passed the landmark Voting Rights Act, which gave the federal government very strong power to, to enforce what was already a constitutional right, and that is the right to vote. Um, I think it's the only thing that I would add, and I, I learned so much actually from um, your synopsis there, but the only thing I would add is, is a lot of this is the fight over who guarantees and who enforces the right to vote, right? But even going all the way back to the founding, you actually, you have not just white men, um, propertied white men um, being extended the franchise, but for example, free black men being extended the franchise. And then earlier on, there were plenty of Western states before the 19th Amendment that right. allowed women to vote in their elections. And in fact, they were trying to like encourage more women to move West because there weren't very many women in the West. It was kind of a, a male-dominated society where uh, they wrestled bears and um, shot each other in the street because there was none of that calming female influence. I'm joking here, of course, but uh, only slightly. Um, yeah, I think Wyoming was the first state to extend yes. the franchise to women. Yeah. Also, it was about like representation, as so many of these questions are about representation of the states in, in Congress, right? So like if you have more voters, you're able to have more representation. Um, and so there were actually there were there, there this, these issues are complicated between the feds and the states. But I take your point, Jennifer, it's it's been a fraught subject in American history. Um, and it, it there's always been this tension between which I'm sure we'll discuss um, this tension between the states primarily being the guarantors and controllers of their elections, both state elections and federal. The states run the elections, but then there have been states uh, that have violated the Constitution and federal law in attempting to restrict voting in particular ways um, in, in their states. And so there's always been this like back and forth. Um, right. I, and I think that's a really important point. So what I was talking about at the beginning is sort of the federal history. Um, and it's true that different states and local jurisdictions were out in front of the federal government and had broader, um, you know, more liberal rules for, for voting long before uh, the, the 15th Amendment was passed and long before the Voting Rights Act was passed. So um, voting is historically a, a state prerogative. Our system is set up that way. It's a federalist system. Um, 
you know, our electoral college is based on the notion that that states matter and that states control um, decisions about who, what, where, when, and, you know, why people vote for the most part. Um, so you're right, that interplay, it's very important when we get into talking about federal bills to, to protect voting rights um, and state bills to protect election integrity, which, which Maya will talk about um, in the second part of our show. Yeah, but before we get to that, could you talk me through where, as somebody who is, again, not an expert in the VRA, um, what are the the sort of key or operative parts of that landmark piece of legislation, um, and, and what does it allow the feds to do? Yeah, so as, as we were just saying, the primary responsibility for running an election is with the state. Um but what became very clear in the early part of the 1960s was that the states that were former members of the Confederacy were not um, holding up their end of the bargain. They were not allowing Black citizens to vote. And the only way to um, force them, essentially, to abide by the Constitution was by very powerful federal legislation. So. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 basically did two things. The first thing it did was it outlawed race-neutral practices that were adopted for the purpose of intentionally discriminating against Blacks. So, for example, a poll tax, if you could prove that the legislature was racially motivated, you know, if the, the historical record showed, oh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to pass this because we don't want black people to able to be able to vote or if you could show that it was you know almost entirely enforced for the purpose of keeping blacks from the polls um, that would be a violation of federal law so it, it outlined outlawed those practices that were race neutral they didn't necessarily say black people can't vote they might just say you have to pass a literacy test or you have to pay a poll tax but if you could prove that intent um, those policies were illegal. And significantly, the act gave the federal government the power to send observers to monitor local elections um, in order to, to protect voting rights. So that was very, very important as well. Um, the most controversial part of the Voting Rights Act, which was Section 5, and that's the section um, that was actually was most controversial, but also most effective in protecting Southern voting rights. So what that section said was for a temporary amount of time, five years, it was what Congress originally said, certain jurisdictions who have demonstrated that they are discriminating intentionally against Black voters they are going to have to submit to federal control essentially for a certain amount of time. And they had to be very clever in the way that they crafted this section. Otherwise, it wasn't going to withstand constitutional challenge because, as you pointed out, Inez, this is a state prerogative. So um, if the federal government came in and said every state has to clear their voting procedures with the federal government, that would violate our federal system, it would be blatantly unconstitutional. So they couldn't do that. Um, if they said, you know what, only the states of Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, whatever, 
Um, only certain states have to do as we say. That would also violate the Constitution because they would be discriminating against states, singling out states and discriminating against them. So they came up with a clever formula um, that that basically Congress said, if you fit into this formula, that is prima facie evidence that you are a discriminator. Um, and they designed the formula so that really only the former states of the Confederacy would meet the test. Um, and so it was very targeted. They did a lot of trial and error to see what percentages and what numbers would, would work. Um, and they basically got the entire, you know, Jim Crow section of the country under federal jurisdiction. It was supposed to expire. This was supposed to expire in 19, in 1970 because the act was passed in 1965. Yes. Yeah, so five years. Um, and the idea was that, you know, this was going to be tough medicine, but we, we, the feds are going to force these non-complying states to comply. And, and it worked, uh, within a, you know, very few years, the number of blacks who had registered to vote in the deep South had risen exponentially. Um, and, and it, it was very successful, but what happened was Congress extended it. Uh, from 1970, and basically they've continued to extend it. So the Voting Rights Act, it, well, part of the Voting Rights Act was supposed to be permanent. The part that just said you can't pass these policies that are intended to discriminate. Um, but the part about getting the federal government to, to pre-clear and approve your local policies, such as, you know, we're going to hold an election at precinct A and instead of precinct B, or we're going to we're going to move the drop-off location for absentee ballots from this corner to that corner. You know, states that are that that were covered by Section Five have to pre-clear all of those changes with the federal government. That part was only intended to be temporary. It has de facto become permanent because Congress keeps reauthorizing it over and over and over again. Um, and every time a state tries to pass, you know, sort of a common sense measure about, well, you know, polls are going to close at this time, um, or we're going to require people to show driver's licenses to vote, the, the left says, well, that's a violation of the Voting Rights Act. So that's sort of a broad outline of the law and where we are, how this whole debate fits together. Um, but I think Maya will be able to explain a lot, you know, a lot more about the specific debates that are happening on the ground in several states. And on that note, um, we're going to go ahead and bring up our guest this episode. Um, Maya Noronha, um, you are a civil rights attorney and a visiting fellow with the Independent Women's Law Center. Um, it's so good to have you to talk us through this, this complicated dance between the states that that are fitting under the formula um, or still fit under the formula that Jennifer um, laid out and uh, and the federal government in terms of, of what they do um, and how they balance uh, the franchise with, for example, election integrity. So uh, welcome to At The Bar. It's great to have you. It's great to uh, be here. Independent Women's Law Center and Independent Women's Forum are hosting this talk. And um, it's so important that we do it right now, especially because most states are right now 
in the middle of their um, legislative session. It's the busiest time right now. So we should be talking about it. So can you just start off by explaining, just explain the term election integrity? What what do people mean when they say we need to protect election integrity? Well, uh, elections need to be run well, basically. And so integrity is about um, making sure that we know who the voters are, that they come to the polls and we count their ballots and make sure that uh, we count them correctly. And making sure the system works is the basics of uh, running elections. And so what these laws are trying to do is just make them work so that the election officials who were overwhelmed after the 2020 election and, and you know, um, uh, during a pandemic, which was highly unusual, we can um, reform our system and make sure that that doesn't, you know, the, the chaos um, at the polls or confusion um, doesn't happen in future elections. That's why they're amending their laws. Right. So before we get into some of the state bills, um, I want to ask you a little bit about recent attempts to um, extend Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act further. Um, and there are a bunch of bills that maybe some of our listeners have heard about, H.R. 1, H.R. 4, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And maybe you could talk a little bit about um, what those are, what they aim to do, who's for them, who's against them, that kind of stuff. Well, essentially, the broad brush is that the federal government wanted to be more involved than state and local um, governments that have, since the beginning of time um, in our country, been involved in getting um, people who live there involved in, in how their basics of, of government are run. So uh, the election integrity is part and parcel of, of that. The concerns about the federal government mandating down a one-size-fits-all solution was uh, difficult for a lot of uh, you know localities because they hadn't you know addressed maybe this circumstance, this particular doesn't fit my community, and so. Uh, elections are, are supposed to be local because they're closest to the people. So the, these efforts in a, a lot of bills that we saw, you know, they were called For the People Act and HR1 and different names and John Lewis Voting Rights Act. You have to read really feel and, a good name. <laughs> yeah, you know, we've seen a number of iterations and um, the, the folks who looked at the Constitution noticed the election clause. The, the, there's only the the baseline is having state and local government um, run our elections. And only in the extreme um, uh, circumstances when the states aren't actually applying the law, like during the, the, the time of uh, the civil rights movement picked in, they weren't enforcing the 15th Amendment. So they took to the Voting Rights Act. Then the federal government can step in. Right now, there's a bill in every single state and lots of bills, even more this session than last session. So they are doing something about it. And at the local level where you live in your community is where you should be talking about voting rights and whether these reforms will actually help the people in their area. Right. So one of the things that the, the federal bill wants to do is to prohibit nationally across the country um, voter ID laws. And so right now we have a patchwork. States can make their own decisions about whether or not 
uh, poll workers can ask people for to see a form of identification to see if they are the voter that they say they are. Um, interestingly, you know, we live in this time of, of COVID and COVID passports where restaurants are asking people to see their identification and their vaccine cards. Nobody seems to be complaining. I mean, some people are complaining about that, but nobody's saying it's discriminatory. Um, many states want to pass laws to require identification for voting. And these federal proposals are claiming that, that no, that's discriminatory. That's, that's a form of voter suppression. That's a form of just, you know, um, trying to disenfranchise black voters. And therefore we wanna prohibit it across the country and not let states make their own decisions about that. How do you feel about that aspect of, of the John Lewis voting rights bill? Well, I think it's misleading um, because actually these states are providing free IDs. You know, you look in Kentucky, they, you know, ha have these provisions that in other states are being criticized to have a government issued number just to, to make sure that your ballot um, gets delivered. So that's actually helpful to the voter because a lot of states have, have implemented a digital tracking. So you know that your ballot um, with your number actually reached the election office. And so that was a problem with voting by mail. So it, the for others who are don't have the ability to get an ID, this is where the government should be reforming. So a lot of these state laws are actually fixing their identification problems because people die, people move, they need to keep updating their roles. And so getting somebody an ID and making sure that their driver's license records, that their um, you know, health records all are coordinated is what these states are working on to make sure that they can best serve the people. Um, so, so if you, oh, sorry. No, no, no. So if, you, your point. <laughs> so if people who don't have IDs, why aren't we working um, directly on making the identification um, more effective rather than attacking an election reform for requiring that ID? If someone's poor, someone's actually getting an ID that you can use to uh, identify yourself to apply for a loan, that's something important. And that that's what these laws are trying to get for voting and um, they're coupled with efforts to reform the, the identification systems used in states. Um, so it strikes me there, there are two ways that you could lose your vote illegitimately, right? Be, be a registered and um, legal voter in your state of residence and lose the power of your vote. The first is through the kind of measures that Jennifer opened this program talking about, right? Um, the, the kind of weaselly requirements that are designed to prevent you from exercising your constitutional right to vote. But the second is having your vote canceled by somebody who is not a legal or legitimate voter um, in, in your state, right? Um, somebody who, for example, is not a citizen of the United States, or frankly, just somebody who wants to sign under your name and your address and vote as they please. Um, and so that, that's also a, a way of not having your vote and your right to vote protected. And, and after all, the, the specific reform we were just talking about, the voter ID laws, four in five Americans support that, according to a Monmouth poll from June of 2021. So fairly recently, right? This, this is something that Americans actually, of all backgrounds, do support as a common sense uh, measure to just check if people are who they say they are before they vote. Um, you know, how 
how do we get to a point where uh, inevitably any discussion of keeping the integrity of the vote, which is very much a part, as I just said, of, of actually protecting our right to vote um, and, and our right as a people to, to sort of choose our, our representatives and, and uh, make our will known. Why, why has it become uh, such such a, a uh, I guess, political hot potato when, when it's supported? Some of these measures are very like common sense and supported by, um, by the w- wide ma- majority of Americans, not only of all racial backgrounds, but also you know, Democrats support voter ID, like Democratic voters support voter ID largely because you can't get to 80 percent without a lot of Democrats. Well, and if you look at the states that have one party rule like Rhode Island, they um, and it, it's Democrats who are there. They passed a voter ID law because they recognized within their party, um, you know, other party members could um, misuse it and have get out the vote um, supposed drives, but actually be pushing and, you know, doing, um, manipulating the ballots. Um, uh, frequently with vote by mail, it's folks in nursing homes who are manipulated or folks in poorer areas or foreign language speakers. So a lot of these, um, I don't think election integrity is in conflict with voting rights. It's actually pro-civil rights because you're making sure that a, a person's vote is counted and it is, the system works. Um, so everybody looking at their laws and making sure that they're being followed is really important to have a government that runs well. Talk a little bit about the nursing home situation. I know you've written about that, Maya, about some of the abuses that were taking place there and some of the legislation that was passed to protect elderly people. Um, and not just elderly people, but disabled people who might not be able to get out of their car and vote. There are certain, um, some states have the ability to, to, to like sort of drive through voting, but with restrictions and again, to protect them from from having their votes stolen. Tell us about those concerns and those efforts. Well, uh, we there are great laws and they definitely on the books protect persons with disabilities and um, folks who are um, older Americans. Um, but we should look really critically whether some of the, the efforts are actually helping them that seem to make it more convenient, but are they actually protecting integrity as well? So there have been so many cases rising up in Florida and concerns in um, Texas uh, about balloteras, um, which are ballot brokers. And so they've been discovering that folks will go from nursing home to nursing home and um, take someone's ballot or um, very, very disturbing stories where um, there was even a story in the Philadelphia Inquirer in Pennsylvania where a son came to his mom and she she had um, a Alzheimer's and she couldn't remember who took her vote or whether they actually put in the ballot who she cast the ballot for. So this is a very concerning trend that we've discovered. And we have a baby boomer generation um, that is casting ballots. We should be concerned that their vote counts. But a large group of um, folks are coming in um, doing ads in foreign languages to target certain voters and saying, I'll help you. And they're ballot brokers. But we we didn't have regulations, we didn't have state laws particularly addressing it because it's it's an evolving phenomenon that's come up. 
So these election integrity reforms, which um, I've been highlighting in IWF's um, uh, Two Truths and a Lie, show that they're in Texas's law that passed last year, that were they're in Florida's law, and um, putting those in election integrity provisions are also pro-civil rights. And we shouldn't forget that, that um, they're in those state bills. What how, do they, how do they do that? How do they protect, oh. say, the woman in the nursing home from having, you know, an unscrupulous person come in and, and, and hand over, have her hand over her ballot to them, even though she... Well, what they're doing, um, some, there are a lot of different um, nuances in it. Sometimes they're having a witness um, so that uh, the individual has to attest to it and sign their name and they can be tracked back to it. Otherwise, we have no idea who delivered it. Um, they're restricting these um, advocacy groups um, that, that come in um, and saying, hey, you have to actually tell the voter, um, you know, I'll be delivering your ballot, but you can actually go and get it yourself. Or um, they're restricting it to somebody you know, like a family member. Who, or um, And even a lot of states will have the election official um, actually from the, the polling place go out to you. So um, the issue with curbside voting is, you know, if you have a physical disability, can't enter the polling place, what they'll do is enable you to vote by the curb. But the phenomenon that happened during COVID was drive-through voting. And you don't necessarily know then if you drop off a ballot, who's in the car, you know, uh, mm -hmm. the election official is just, you know, sitting in their office and then they get a drop box or um, dropping off a ballot. Are they being um, taken by somebody who's influencing their vote, who's um, manipulating their vote, who's telling them who to vote for? You know, we have federal laws saying both your union boss and your employer can't coerce you to vote a certain way. And so those laws are on the books. And this is another type of law addressing a way that you could really influence or manipulate somebody in casting their vote in secret and casting their vote voluntarily. It seems like um, one of the easiest uh, ways to to actually commit voter fraud or to um, some of the situations that you just described, right? It, it is absentee. Other than the curbside um, that you just mentioned, it's because everybody is voting by mail. Um, and, and, you know, during COVID, um, there seems like there was an, a flood of states who were doing this without a lot of free thought. So there are states that have um, extensive voting by mail systems. Colorado comes to mind. Um, but it seemed like a lot of states just kind of threw ballots into the wind. And I'm thinking here of my home state of California, which has been sending my husband his California ballot despite multiple notifications of the state over the last 10 years. Um, he's been receiving every every year, every election, he's been receiving California ballots in his family home that he hasn't you know, lived in in a decade and a half. Actually, he got like uh, my husband, Jared Stepman, he got... Uh, dunked on by Gavin Newsom for saying that and then, you know, had to produce the receipts that in fact, yeah, I'm still getting this ballot, Gavin. Um, but all my California friends, um, all of them received ballots from previous occupants of their houses. Uh, they received multiple ballots at the same location. Um, it was just a giant mess because it turns out the rolls are not updated. So if you just mail out a ballot to every single address, um, in the database, it's it's a wildly uh, it's wildly open to to fraud and misuse. But you know how 
is it possible to do this kind of, because I, I think this, the flip side would be some of the cases you just mentioned, you know, there are people who can't get to the polling place. Um, there were people who are too afraid of, of COVID during the pandemic and that might've kept them away from the polls, for example. I mean, how do we balance integrity and convenience? Because it seems like these two things, we have this modern notion that voting ought to be really easy and really convenient. Um, which is not how it's always been, even aside from some of the history that Jennifer mentioned. We, we always we used to think of voting as a more solemn duty than something you should be able to do in and out in 10 minutes without ever messing up anything about your day. Um, but given that we are in this modern era and convenience is important um, to a lot of people, how, how do we balance making sure that you are who you say you are and you're actually a registered voter and you're actually casting a legitimate ballot with not making it really difficult for people who really might have issues getting to the polls on a particular day? Well, that's what these election integrity bills are trying to do. So there's a push now to get people on voter lists, you know, same day registration or, um, you know, send voting uh, an application for a ballot and then get it sent back. But, uh, you know, or to, to ensure that your ballot, it, it's you that was delivered and the election officials are trying to contact you. So in, involving working together is really integral in it. You know, your election official um, is, uh, plays a key role and not just on when you vote as an American, they are working all year long. So first they have to prepare and set up the lists and um, set up the elections, print enough ballots, um, you know, check all the machines, make sure that um, they have enough staff. And then during the election is when we interact mostly with them, unless you're um, working in elections. And, and then afterwards, they have to count them, they have to check their systems, they have to prepare for the next election and see what irregularities happen and try to improve it. So this is an ongoing process. So helping those um, involves actually a lot of planning ahead of time. So the rush to quick, 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 get this ballot, get somebody more, it, it's the nuts and bolts you have to understand that having an election official time to um, address it ahead of time so it doesn't um, result in, um, in planning it by having good registration rolls gets those people their ballot and gets it, um, you know, on the time. And those that can, you know, go in person or take that effort um, ensures that those limited resources of the election officials are really devoted to those that that can't come in in person. That are that's why our polling places have been um, set up um, in person because um, you you should know folks in your community, know neighbors. And so that that's and if you history. don't know them, you should be able to check their ID. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it used to be that in in some jurisdictions, not all, um, if you did not exercise your right to vote over a number of years, let's say a decade, they might purge you from the voting rolls. So they would the election officials would go through and say, well, you know, so and so hasn't come in ten years. We're going to assume that means that they have passed away or moved or what have you. Um, and a lot of these sort of automatic cleansing of the roles uh, were challenged under civil rights laws as discriminatory um, because they, they allegedly had a disparate impact on 
certain groups, whether, you know, certain minority groups. Um, you know, what do you make of that kind of disparate impact challenge? I mean, it's not just voter purge laws that are challenged using that legal theory. Um, that theory is used to challenge all sorts of voter integrity measures. The, the requirement of showing identification, people say, well, that that's discriminatory against, you know, name your group, people who don't speak English because they can't somehow figure out how to get a license, people who are poor and, and mostly, you know, of a certain race. Um, they say those are discriminatory. They say if you move a polling place because of traffic, you are somehow trying to prevent people who live in that neighborhood um, from voting and, and you're suppressing the vote on the basis of race. Um, what do you make of these disparate impact claims? Are they valid under the Voting Rights Act? What's been their success rate? Well, as you know, um, doing civil rights is that um, looking at statistics, um, what's really important in the law is is developing what caused what. So if you cut up the the you know number of people by some sort of variable, um, you say certain races, certain um, you know um, countries they come from, or certain um, areas of the the country, um, you can manipulate them and assume that hey wait this this is actually racist. It may not be that, that that's the case. There could be a, another reason for it. Maybe somebody had um, uh, who was an election official in that particular area wasn't updating the roles. And so there was a, a, a large members of the family who are all related to each other, who are all the same uh, you know, um, uh, race, um, were in that area. So it, it can be misleading and to assume that something is racism when you haven't looked at the whole picture can be a big jump to um, to address it. And so um, we, there was a case on the 19th Amendment um, that uh, we wrote about that um, uh, they alleged that felon um, voting, um, removing felons from the voting list um, was uh, uh, violating the 19th Amendment. But if you actually looked at their own disparate impact argument, that it, it, it discriminated against women, that women actually weren't the majority of felons. So here, uh, they, they actually are men. And even though there's 50 plus 1% women in, in the country, we're actually you know, not technically a, a numerical minority. Um, that was an interesting observation that, hey, wait, you know, statistics can be misleading. And to just rely on a number of people so the, their argument like was that <laughs> women are the majority of voters, therefore felon voting prohibitions discriminate against women. Was that, what, what was the argument they were trying to make? It seems sort of nonsensical. Well, it, they were, you know, comparing some statistics and others and trying to allude that, you know, um, certain women, if they, they found select plaintiffs who were women who were felons. And so they raised this argument um, to try to undo the felon voting law for everybody um, based on a few um, plaintiffs. So in those cases, um, you know, this type of theory, what, when, you know, 
most Americans think of discrimination, it's intentional discrimination. This person doesn't want you to vote. They want to suppress you and they've targeted you. Right. But and in fact, the, the, what the 15th Amendment and Voting Rights Act, uh, the original Voting Rights Act prohibited were acts of intentional discrimination, not policies with disparate racial impact. Although a lot of the federal bills um, in Congress now are trying to implement uh, legislatively a disparate impact standard, which is concerning because as you point out, statistics can be misleading. And also, you know, interestingly, a disparate impact and a disparate negative impact on one group could be a disparate positive impact on another group, right? So like in the disabled community, you see this all the time, a policy that has a negative impact on the hard of hearing might have a positive impact on people who are, are vision impaired or vice versa. So it's very hard to say, you know, whether a disparate impact is actually discriminatory or not. And, and it may discriminate against one group and not another. Well, I find in the civil rights field, uh, these are um, civil rights policies are developed, you know, by folks who have just gotten a law degree. And as you know, from going to law school, they didn't really have mathematics courses there. They didn't study mm -hmm. statistics. And so it's, it's very dangerous having a civil rights advocate if they're not working with statistical analysis folks and, you know, evaluating social change or looking at the detailed facts of this particular situation, whether it's a violation of the law or some other something else is going on. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I think this is just right. Th there's an ideology that says disparity equals discrimination. Right. And that ideology is increasingly, whether statistical expert or not, that ideology is increasingly pervading all institutions of America. Um, but I wanted to ask you about something in some way that that is even more radical than any of the things we're talking about. Right. Because we've been talking about balancing, you know, checking that people are legal, registered voters, citizens of the United States and who they are, um, say are who they say they are at a polling place and whether or not that's discriminatory, because in addition to somebody who is attempting to commit voter fraud, you might put a barrier in place for somebody who is a legitimate voter, uh, but, you know, is turned away because of that, that barrier. My city of New York City now is doing something much more direct. Uh, they are simply uh, allowing non-citizens who are residents of New York City to, to cast ballots and go ahead and vote in city elections. Um, I was wondering how you how you think about that, um, whether you think that may conflict with um, with the Voting Rights Act or with the constitutional rights of citizens who are actually American citizens casting their ball ballots. Well, there's actually a lawsuit about it, um, a lawsuit actually um, about how that um, bill will dilute the votes of um, citizens who are there in New York. And the other um, interesting thing, there's a, another lawsuit that um, saying, hey, wait, actually, this bill was about elevating one, um, you know, foreign national group over another racial group. So that raised all sorts of concerns under the 15th Amendment. Are we just playing racial politics in, you know, trying to win elections? So that that's a very controversial law, but to for any American should be concerned is why would you actually become a U.S. citizen if you can just cast a ballot? And the interesting thing about the New York City law is you only have to live there for 30 days. 
And so um, the media is hyped up about this, um, saying, yeah, green card holders, legal permanent residents. But look at the actual law and you see that it includes visa holders. So these, um, so to vote in those local elections, you'll be influencing what laws are applying and you might not even be here um, later on. You, you are actually a citizen usually of another country. So do you represent and have you been here long enough to represent the, you know, what is best for New York and all of your, your communities? Um, so one of them would allow foreign media who are coming here to report on the news for a foreign, foreign media company to cast ballots. So I, I you know, the, this, these types of ideas sound good, you know, let, how are they going to go over to Europe and vote in their election? <laughs> how about that? The <laughs> other issue with that is that they changed it for city elections, this, this change in voting. And, but the rest of the state of New York only allows citizens. So, and then in, in federal elections, you know, your, your senator, your U.S. representative, your president, under federal law, you can only vote if you're a U.S. citizen. So now the, the New York City will have to keep separate voter rolls for all sorts of different elections. And you know how it's hard it's to keep uh, voter list maintenance. We've seen lots of states right. haven't updated it. So, you know, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure what will inevitably happen is they'll they'll go in and they'll be given the complete ballot, state, federal and local. And so all these people who maybe legally are now voting in city elections will be illegally voting uh, in other elections, if, you know, in part due to just sort of sheer bureaucratic incompetence. Well, the other problem is under federal law. Voting, um, if you are a non-U.S. citizen, would put you, you know, it's illegal and will put you in jail. So we're inviting people to come here for, you know, after 30 days, telling them that we can vote. And are we telling them all the information? You can only vote in this. You, the, the election law is really complicated. And here we're making it even more complicated um, for someone who's just been here for a month. Right. And then if you don't if you don't print those instructions in every conceivable language under the sun, you've committed another civil rights violation. So there's that aspect of it. Well, that's why in our U.S. citizenship to help people, there's a certain set time you live here. Um, you learn English, you learn American history and you assimilate and, and become an American. You're not a citizen of someplace else. You're not just a New Yorker. You're an American. You're part of the union. United States of America. Um, so that, that, I think that's really important. We lost our civic duty, our our sense of you know, hey, this is so wonderful to be a citizen. Will Will anyone become a citizen then? I want to be a citizen of the world and just travel around the country voting in other people's elections. Travel around the world voting in other people's elections. Well, a lot of people have dual citizenship and try to do that. Um. Yeah, it's it really does undermine the entire notion of of we the people, right? It, it it's not a it's not a simple um, you know action of fraud. It it it's a question about who we the people actually are. Uh, is it we the people who have uh, either by birth or by um, a voluntary act decided to join this union um, and and uh, you know dedicate ourselves 
to our fellow citizens in a sense and, and separate us out from the world, which is a very uh, anti-citizen of the world notion that seems out of favor with today's elites, uh, unfortunately. But it, it really is an attack on the concept of citizenship at all um, to, to allow people who are just stopping over for 30 days, right? Um, who maybe are here to work for a month or two, or, or maybe are here on a long vacation, um, to, to admit them as part of the body politic as opposed to a visitor is, is it's truly an attack on citizenship. Yeah, citizenship is a wonderful thing in this country. And I think we may have lost sense of it in, you know, um, trying to change our laws. Um, we have some of the, the, you know, most wonderful people already in this country. Why are we dividing them up and why are we changing what American is? Um, and and that's what we should be involved in is, you know, um, making our elections like in New York City, which has had a lot of problems with voter list maintenance, um, improving them before we start changing them in other ways. So where, where else, um, correspondingly on e each side of this debate, um, which states or localities are are um, making it perhaps uh, sort of are, are, are making reforms that are opening or liberalizing um, their voting laws to the point where perhaps they are having a negative effect on election integrity and, and which states are trying to um, perhaps put in place some safeguards so that we know who is voting. You know, we know that they're citizens. Um, we know that they are casting a legitimate ballot. So where are these fault lines happening in states? Um, and and uh, which like bundle of states is becoming or, or which states in particular are becoming a model for each side, sort of red and blue? Well, it, it's complicated. We have in state legislatures um, bills on both sides. And so it's really what the leadership of that particular state legislature really wants to prioritize. Um, and so um, which which direction? Um, so one of an example of one of the, the you know powerful reforms that's just been proposed recently is in South Carolina to have voter ID, and so uh, helping that state you know just connect who um, who cast ballot with who um, uh, what the the actual ballot they get in vote by mail is important, and they're also adding uh, proposed to add a witness requirement so to protect in that that vote by mail. Um, issue so that um, individuals are actually the ones that have that ballot. Somebody else has seen that and can, you know, if they come into court, a prosecutor can say, hey, wait, um, who's this person that witnessed your ballot? Because, it, you know, uh, it, it, it doesn't, I got two ballots, you know, that look like they're from you. And so they can go back to that witness and say, wait a minute, I, I signed here and this is my ballot. Um, that one is not mine. Um, so that that's a simple, you know, common sense way of double checking. And that's what our government should be doing, making sure it's accurate, making sure that um, it works well. Before uh, we so another um, not so um, positive uh, law is being pushed, you know, right as we speak through New Mexico. And that will create a permanent absentee um, list. So mm -hmm. you're on this list as registered. And you'll be on it for as long as you want. It, you know, it's another example. It sounds good to have convenience, but how is that going to operate? You just have a bloated voter roll, and it becomes so difficult. You know, because some a lot of states work on sharing it their their lists to figure out who moved, who you know, um, who died in that area. Let's update it. 
And so you have this huge list. It becomes harder and harder for those election officials to, to do their jobs. Um, and then the other, the interesting thing about that bill to, you know, deal with the, the more costs from their election changes, they're taking 20 million from a, um, a children's um, early childhood education. So the interesting things that, you know, um, you know, uh, what are the costs um, financially too to implement these systems are really being looked at in these states and where are they drawing the money from is, is a interesting con uh, situation there in New Mexico that deserves more, more discussion. I wanna ask you before we go, um, your, your take on how the media is covering all this because everything you say sounds so reasonable and practical and common sense, but but if you just turned on the nightly news, what you would hear is uh, Republicans want to make sure that fewer people vote and they want to suppress the votes of minorities and, and, and the poor. And Democrats want to make voting easy and accessible for everybody. And that, okay. that's basically the tenor of what, of what you would hear. Um, why isn't anybody sort of covering this in a more neutral, objective way, just talking about the pros and cons of making voting both easy and accessible um, while securing the ballot and, and making it and making sure that people's votes aren't canceled out at the same time? Well, the media has been selectively um, and uh, using very hyperbolic language, too. I keep seeing, you know, voter suppression, Jim Crow, uh, voter purge. But hey, wait, uh, it's called voter list maintenance. You know, that doesn't sound as, you know, very, uh, um, you know, interesting, but that, that's what election administration is about. Those kind of just basic transparency, accountability, um, regular, um, and we've lost sense of that. I don't, you know, I, I've been in, you know, um, election law, I've done it um, for different, for more than just 2020. And that's what the nuts and bolts of it is. Um, we've, we've gotten away from discussing, you know, what actually is in those laws um, to, hey, wait, what is somebody who's advancing a, a sort of sense that we're all racist or, you know, if one party is fighting for this against others. And, you know, we're not actually talking about the text of the bill. I think a big part of it, I mean, the reason that, that people get away with, with misinforming the public is because the public doesn't have an accurate sense of history, what we started off this program talking about. They don't know what Jim Crow was. They don't know how bad it really was. They don't know that, uh, you know, black voters were, were hosed down and, and attacked by German shepherds. They don't know that, um, you know, the states of the former Confederacy literally had them take had them take literacy tests that asked them um, to estimate the number of bubbles in a bar of soap um, and didn't apply the same questions to white voters who came to take these so-called literacy tests. Uh, they, they don't know how bad the discrimination was and what Jim Crow means. And so it allows people on the left just to say, you know, they're trying to bring back Jim Crow trying to bring back Jim Crow because because they're asking you for your license like this is not the same thing as giving you a fraudulent test that there's no way you can pass but people don't know the history 
Yeah, just just to to wrap up with some concluding thoughts. I mean, the flip side of what you just said, Jennifer, you know, the road to ruin for any democracy or republic uh, is when people start mistrusting the results of the election, right? And we've seen this in in the past several elections. People, you know, pretend that this this came about with uh, you know, quote unquote, stop the steal in twenty twenty, um, but the reality is we haven't had an a unchallenged election, um, presidential election for our, at least I think the last truly unchallenged presidential election was George H.W. Bush. Um, in 2000, we obviously had the the Florida thing with the hanging chads and went to the Supreme Court, right? Um, and we had the losers of that election say, essentially, they stole the election from me. Um, and, and going forward, every single election uh, has been in some way contested by the other side. Now, some of that's resolvable and inevitable. In this country. <laughs> some of that's resolvable and inevitable, right? Um, when you have you have a huge country of millions of people, you have millions of registered voters, you have fifty states all administering different rules. Um, it's bound that there will be some fraud and there will be some mistrust in every single election. Um, but I, I think we are hurtling down a path where we're not going to be able to have confidence um that the the for example the the president of the united states is duly elected by the people who were legally casting balance in the election and that's you know that's banana republic stuff right and that that that's the sort of thing that has launched um you know, incredible protests that, that have been cracked down on in Belarus. This is the sort of thing um, that happens in in uh, Venezuela. That happens in and and our our election system is obviously not that bad yet. Um, but well, but and, it's it's so important luckily, that like this is a topic for another day. But one of the reasons it's not that bad and hopefully we'll never get that bad is because of the electoral college. It actually protects us from a lot of that stuff. But we'll have to bring Maya back another day. <laughs> yeah. But, but that subject itself, I mean, just we need to, as citizens, it's so important for all of us to be able to trust the vote, especially when we lose, right? Especially when our side loses, we need to be able to respect the legitimacy um, of, of our elected officials as truly elected by the American people. And, and to that end, I think uh, your work, Maya, is, is so important um, to make sure that we're protecting not just against voter suppression, real voter suppression on the one hand, but actually protecting the integrity of the ballot on the other hand, because uh, without without both, we really can't be certain that um, the people who are are in power, who are making our laws, are are really representative of what the American people want, and that's that's the essence of democracy, right there. So, um, thank you so much for for coming on, uh, Maya. It was great to have you. Um, and it, thanks again to all of our listeners. Um, At the Bar is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. Um, it's available for viewing on Facebook, YouTube, and IWF.org. You can also listen to it in podcast form, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, anywhere that you get your podcasts. We are here every other Thursday at 5, uh, usually with with bubbles or or um, with, with a drink or two for, for some casual chats, but about important uh, subjects of the intersection of law and culture and politics. Uh, so we hope you you join us again in two weeks. Jennifer, you want you have any uh, final closing thoughts here? Yeah, if anybody's interested in reading more of Maya's work, um, they can find it at IWF.org and also on the newly launched uh, Independent Women's Law Center website at IWLC.org under voting rights, or maybe it's just called voting. But you can find a lot of her great work in either of those two places. I encourage everybody to check it out. 
Um, otherwise, we'll see everybody in two weeks for another edition of At the Bar. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.